0: We've had kiddos who weren't showing up on their online meetings, and with a little digging, the, the administrator found out, well, they're not proud of what their home looks like, so they didn't want all their classmates to see.
1: This month on Ebb and Flow, we follow the efforts of a local school district to educate through COVID-19. And since at least my children never have anything to report from their school day, we're taking it up a few levels to the Assistant Superintendent of Public Schools for Stonington, Connecticut. Her name is Marianne Butler, and in addition to her leadership role in the school system, she is a national presenter for the Bureau of Education and Research, serves on the NCAA High School Review Committee and in 2019 became one of 10 US administrators to participate in the inaugural cohort of the Fulbright Leaders for Global Schools. In our discussion, Marianne shares stories of heartbreaking circumstances, heartwarming dedication, and also comments on the potential long-term impact of this health crisis on students, teachers, and education in America. I'm your host, Paul Leeming, and on behalf of all of us at UBS Long River Wealth Management, welcome to this month's edition of ebb and flow. Marianne Butler, thank you so much for being with us today. It is truly appreciated.
0: Oh, it's my pleasure.
1: Well, I'm looking forward to this conversation so much to talk about. And I will tell you, it is of personal importance to me with two young children in the very school system that you help lead. So I look forward to this quite a bit. So Marianne, I wonder if we can start by looking back at 2020 all the way back, in fact, to the beginning of this pandemic, when did you all in the school system recognize that the coronavirus was a problem that would impact schools? And what was that like for you?
0: Wow. it's I mean, we're closing in almost now a year on when that unfolded for us. and it was it's interesting to think of it in back in that time frame because we originally you know we started to hear about cases surfacing and closing in us on us, if you will. And we upped our game on our facilities with our facilities manager, really taking extra care and deep cleaning the buildings and things like that. But it probably wasn't until late February that we noticed now it was getting serious. You know, we were starting to hear from the governor and the in Connecticut State Department of Education, and it was at that time, I want to say late February and early March, that we knew we were going to have. We were told basically you're going to have to you're going to have to go remote and figure out figure it out. You can have one week, or two weeks out of school, to figure out how to accommodate these kids remotely. And so it was really, it was the week of March 9th was the last week we had our kids in for that full week. And ironically, it was Friday the 13th. It was her last oh, day with us all in person. But I can tell you it was, there was a flurry of activity. I've never been in a war room, but I would imagine it was a lot like sure. that. Uh, we had all hands on deck. We had our technology folks figuring out how to deploy devices and hotspots to both staff and students. We had our food service folks making sure that the kids would be fed from the high school. So that was a big, big concern of ours. You know, our business manager was helping us make sure that we financially could swing some unexpected expenses. You know, where are we going to get that money from? Curriculum people got together and actually put together a plan of, you know, what the days were going to look like. Mm -hmm. And then we had to start thinking about during that week when the kids were on vacate, quote unquote, vacation, that unexpected March break. We had to figure out how we were going to get the teachers and the paraprofessionals ready so that they could go into this new world, knowing that they each had various experiences with technology platforms, with instructional technologies that would be engaging for kids from home. And so we saw a lot of creativity. We saw the best of everyone kind of shine forth as a team. And I can't say enough about Kate Rotella and Heather Summers, who were constantly on the phone with us about how they could support us. So it really it really... In Stonington, it was it, it our best actually, kind of shown through at that time. But it was a time of, I would say, high energy and stress and stress because it, you know information from the state level was coming in drips and drabs, and every day we were we had to be read, ready to adjust our plans.
1: You know, I remember my wife turning to me when we heard that the schools would be closing for sort of one to two weeks, and and her saying, "Oh gosh, do you think?" they'll actually be closed for two weeks or remote for two weeks. And I said, oh no, of course they won't. And it was a stressful time for us as parents, but I I have to admit selfishly, I wasn't thinking how stressful it must have been for you guys uh, trying to make it all work behind the scenes. But we'll talk more about that in a minute. But I wanted to ask you about your thinking over the, the span of this pandemic and how it has evolved. Put another way, have you changed course over this period at different points, and what were those points and why?
0: Absolutely, um, and it's, it builds exactly on where your mindset was back in March. We really did not think it would be, for now, even for the duration of the, the past school year, but then to lead over into this school year, we really, really, we, like everyone else, are trying to kind of comprehend this, the scope of a pandemic and what mm-hmm. that those implications were. So last year, we were very much in that emergency you know, what can we do right now knowing that families were in varied situations, you know, and that if we put a completely structured day into place, it wasn't going to naturally actually jive with them trying to work remotely, or maybe they lost a job and they had to find, you know, another place of employment that was going to not agree with the scheduled school day. So we really tried to put together a fluid, flexible model, thinking it was going to be temporary. When we came back this year, it was with a deliberate effort to have a more, quote-unquote, normal day so that we kept hoping that we would be able to come back fully in person. And we wanted to make it so that if we could either come back fully in person or we had to pivot fully remotely, the changes for the kiddos would be minimalized, that we wanted to keep some predictability to their day, knowing that that is one of the trauma-sensitive practices, right? And we want that predictability in their schedule to keep them engaged so that was kind of the thinking, you know. At, that evolved as as the semester last year, last spring evolved. We thought, boy, if we have to come back and do this in the fall, it has to it has to look more like a normal day. Right. But we, you know, we, you know, we spent a lot of time over the summer looking at the structures we needed to have in place just from a PPE standpoint. But we know this year, we've already had some conversations about, you know, what have we learned that we don't want to lose whenever that time comes that we can get everybody back. And we know that social-emotional well-being is the big piece, but we've also learned, like, you know, we want to keep movement breaks. And we, we've heard that from the high school kids for quite a while, that they wanted those movement breaks in those longer instructional blocks. We have them now because of mass breaks, but we see the benefits of those. We want to keep the robust use of educational technology. Our teachers are doing amazing things with educational technology to facilitate small group instruction, hmm. to maximize the effectiveness of our paraprofessionals. We've seen a shift, especially at the high school level, away from kind of traditional high-stake tests of midterms into more project-based assessments of student understanding. We've looked at parent conference options online. like That's worked really well for a lot of folks. So um, mm. we've learned a lot. We just want to make sure that we don't fall back into that trap of an old model that maybe isn't going to be timely or fit for all, all of our needs when we go back at some point fully in
1: person. Yeah, of course, of course. So, you know, you're, you're describing this and the decisions you're making here on the ground in, in the Stonington School District, but I wonder, to, to what extent are your decisions influenced or driven by state or national policy, or, you know, how do you interact with Hartford and Washington, D.C. on these issues?
0: So, Washington, D.C. typically deals with Hartford, and then Hartford deals with us, right. but I can <laughs> tell you that there is constant conversations from the state level and the local level, from the, the area superintendents um, on up to Department of Health, but we we really look to the CDC. I mean, we lean on CDC for our safety first guidelines. And and those three major mitigation strategies are what we believe are the most important in making all of our decisions, that we can keep that six foot distancing, social distancing, um, that we can keep the ventilation maximized so that that airflow is, is fresh air to the extent possible to come in, and then obviously the masking. But um, the, the federal government has been really good over the past few months, especially when this first hit, about relaxing some of our accountability measures. So, they, they lifted the teacher evaluation and administrator evaluation requirements for last year, which is a lot of busy work, if you will, and, you know, an accountability thing that we was a gift of time to us. They lifted the testing requirements, again, for the standardized test. So, they're, they lifted and an relaxed certification requirements for us this year for teaching assignments. The state also looked at flexibility in snow days, being able to be used as remote days, right. how we spent grant money. You know, we're looking at uh, more federal funding coming through the state through the CARES Act from the federal government. There was a lot of relief back last year. There was some relief this year, but we would hope that the accountability requirements will soften. I know that the state has a waiver request in to kind of soften some of those accountability measures that will really be difficult this year for us, especially on how we count at attendance four-hour accountability measures, and they have not been successful thus, thus far in lifting the testing requirements, but that'll at least give us a measure on where the kiddos are. So that's that's not a that's not a huge tragedy.
1: No, I can imagine not.
0: You know, I mean, we, I think it's important. It's important.
1: Yep. So I'm jumping around a little bit, but there's so much to cover and so little time. So I'm, I'm going to move on to a question about the teachers, Marianne. And as a, as a parent of a six and an eight year old who has shared in the homeschooling duties of our children of late, I have an even deeper respect for what teachers do every day. It's, it's a hard job and, and obviously more difficult these days. So I, I, I wonder, can you speak to the general emotional and physical health of our educators?
0: Yeah, I would say that they're spending more time than ever with this model. This is the most difficult instructional model, having kids in a couple days a week, you know, and on, and having these mixed groups of online kids and kids in your classroom in, in real time is a challenge, and they're putting in extra hours on, on planning. So I would say they're stressed, and they miss their kids, you know. They really miss the ordinary day and back in school, and I know that they're anxious to get that reinstated as, as soon as we can ensure that everyone's going to be safe under the CDC guidelines. But they're doing well. I mean, they're doing well in the fact that they have a great synergy and they take good care of themselves. From the district end, we've made sure that they have self-care professional learning opportunities. We want them to take care of themselves because healthy teachers make for healthy kids. We do some kind of fun from the district level again, some fun wellness activities and competitions to keep them the focus. Like, remember, you have to go out for a walk. You have to read a book. You have to break away from the work in order to maintain your balance in your own life. But um, it is, it's it's tricky because we've got many who have lost parents due to the COVID-19 virus. And we, we've had staff hospitalized. And so it's, it's there. I mean, it's 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 very much an, an active situation, and you know, we're not only concerned with our social emotional well being of our kiddos, we are concerned about our staff as well. And it's a special district because there's a true sense of community here. And certainly, any staff member who has a need to have a remote assignment due to the, you know COVID situations or underlying health conditions, we make sure that they're accommodated.
1: Yeah, I mean it, it's such such a great community. I, I've noticed just picking up the kids after school, all the teachers standing outside, and you know, obviously supporting the kids, but then supporting each other. And it's uh, it really is pretty impressive what they're doing. But Marianne, how how about the students themselves? That you know, I read with horror not too long ago a headline about increased rates of suicide among high school students in, I believe it was Nevada and other places, that obviously is an extreme example of the, the toll this pandemic has had on kids. And I know there are many less apparent symptoms, but you know, how are the students doing in the Stonington system from, from your vantage point?
0: So it's really a mixed bag. I mean, there is some relief for middle school and high school students where appearances and social interactions are high pressure for them. Mm. They have some relief and they don't have to get dressed up for school. There's a little extra time to sleep in in the mornings, which we know our older children benefit (laughs) from. But there there is an uptick uh, at the secondary level of anxiety and isolation. So for every kid that it's working for, there's another child that probably is, is feeling isolated and anxious. We do see a de-escalation, obviously, in behavior issues in school because there's less kids to interact and they're farther apart from each other. But we do have an amazing mental health team, and we do have both administrators and mental health professionals that really know their kids and reach out to some of them on a daily basis to do check-ins with kids, home visits. I mean, we have people dropping materials off for kids if they can't come into school, because of the size of the district and, and the quality of the staff, I would say that you know there's an aggressive, aggressive interaction between the administration and the teachers to go after those kids that are most vulnerable and make sure that we can program from the, for them in the best way possible. I'm pretty proud of that.
1: I bet. And I, could you talk a little bit more about... The more vulnerable among us, you mentioned right at the, the offset that obviously we within a, a school district of this size, there are many different kinds of situations in the home in terms of people having maybe lost a job or being a single parent, maybe not having access to internet, et cetera. So what are some of the other steps you have taken as, a, as, as an administration to address the needs of more vulnerable students?
0: Sure. So I'll, I'll talk about some academic things and then I'll tell you a couple of stories that will really break your heart, but nice. also comfort you in that we're on it. So so from an academic need point of view for the, the vulnerable population, we do have students that, you know, are in three days a week, four days a week, and some kids in five days a week, as long as we can maintain the six feet distancing and the masking and everything. So we really look at our most needy populations. We're so, so grateful for The data that we received from the State Department of Education, we actually received some metrics that show that our children of special education population, we have the highest participation rate in the region. So That's something to be proud of. But even our vulnerable kids who aren't necessarily students with disabilities, we do our best to make sure that their programming suits them, whether it's all remote or if it's a more aggressive in-person within the safety parameters. But we've had kiddos who weren't showing up on their online meetings, and with a little digging, the the administrator found out, well, they're not proud of what their home looks like, so they didn't want all their classmates to see what home looked like and, and the conditions in which they live, and so worked with that family and got them connected with social services and got the kids the materials and resources that they needed, and they're, they're back in school. So those kinds of things. Another child who didn't have of clothes over the summer and couldn't come to school, didn't want to come to school, she didn't have anything to wear. Mm. So we have a social worker, you know, make arrangements to remedy that situation. We had a middle school, our middle school assistant principal spent two hours with a parent on a phone just because she was, the parent was having some challenges with the technology of how to... Monitor attendance with all of the technology systems and the platforms that we use, and just needed that like step by step tutorial and you know at the elbow support to figure it out so that she could be an effective partner, and you know she was a willing partner. She just needed that extra time in order to to navigate something that was very new to her. So there's a lot of ways that we help our vulnerable populations, whether it's the parent or it's the student or a combination of both. And that, again, is, is the kind of leaders that you have in the school, both from the classroom level and at the building
1: level. I want to talk a little bit more about the kids, Marianne, and, you know, one of the questions that, or one of the topics, I should say, that comes up in a lot of our conversations with clients, you know, we're obviously talking about planning and finances, et cetera, but we obviously also talk about families and, and you know, parents will say, you know, we wonder what the long-term developmental impact of this will be on students, you know, an an interrupted year of education. What does that mean down the road? How do you think about that? What will you be looking for? What do you expect in terms of the long-term impact of this uh, virus?
0: Yeah, this is a great unknown. I mean, I, I always like to use the analogy of, you know, somebody my age who's in the hospital, <laughs> every day in the hospital is three days in rehab. And so I, I keep trying to tell people, you know, this isn't going to be fixed next year. This is, this is we're in this for probably two or three years to write the ship when we come back. And I, I just can't understate that. This is not going to be a quick recovery. And it's for good reason, is that we have to make sure that the kids have their social emotional needs met and they're you know mentally you know ready to learn before we can we can go ahead and do that academic recovery. So we're, we're at, my curriculum team and I are actually just beginning the, this formalized two-year academic social and emotional recovery plan so that we can present it to the board so they'll have an idea of a roadmap of what we're thinking about. But we certainly have to pre- be prepared for greater needs next year when we return in person. If you think about it, we have some children that have only known school this way, and so. Can you, imagine, can you imagine being a second grader? And, and, you know, if you think about when you were a little kid, how how long summer seemed to last, <laughs> and now you're coming back into second grade and you can barely remember kindergarten when you were in, in a, a traditional setting, that's going to take some time and, and it's going to be new to routines. It's going to be a huge, huge transition for everyone. In addition to, we're really concerned about, the academic pressure some kids may be under to catch up. You know, they're going to be under stress enough and then these pressures of, you know, high school kids looking at college or the stress of going from middle school up to the high school and what kind of academically rigorous program and expectations are going to be placed upon them. So, we're really worried about the the social-emotional needs and making sure that the kids understand that they have a safe place to go to school and that they have all of the supports and system for many things, you know, just simple things like helping them with their executive functioning skills mm. to making sure that they're solid in that socialization piece when they come back so that they're ready to access the curriculum. The curriculum is actually going to be the easier part, I think. You know, we can do that. We know curriculum. It's yeah. all of the other unknown pieces that are, are going to be a little bit trickier, but we'll get there. I mean, we, we're looking at our benchmark data in another couple of weeks. The kids are taking it right now, and we'll have an idea, you know, between Getting some extra help this semester and summer school, and then some additional help next year. We'll be keeping an eye on that academic recovery piece. But again, I would say it's unrealistic to think that that's going to happen in one year's time.
1: I think that's an important takeaway for everyone to hear uh, that this is not just going. You're not going to flip a switch and and everything returns back to normal. Right. We will we will watch with interest. So, Marianne, in my profession, we often contemplate how. COVID-19 will have impacted certain businesses. You know, sometimes it might accelerate certain trends, which are interesting from an investment standpoint. But do you think education in this country will benefit in any way from what we've learned over the past year? You mentioned earlier some of the things that you know, you're not just going to return back to a broken model. You you may move ahead based on some of the things you've learned here, but can you talk more about what you have learned and what you don't want to lose whenever full in-person learning returns?
0: Yeah, I think next to the law, education is the slowest (laughs) entity to change. It's a tough competition there, but There are things at the local level that we know we can maintain control of of that we we don't want to lose. I mean, we've seen some students, especially at the high school, I think we have close to 14 children that are graduating early because they were able to complete their coursework. And we have, I think, 11 that are duly enrolled and getting college credit right now. So we want to look at some of the practices that are making education a little bit more personalized for our kids and not lose that looking at doing some really, you know, some cool opportunities at the the middle school, building on the work that's been done there. After this pandemic, I think the kids have a sense of being part of a globe. But if anything good has come out of this, they understand now that you are connected to people around the the world Mm -hmm. and make some deliberate deliberate connections in our curriculum that way that's going to build on some of the great work that's happened through the consolidation and the opening of Stonington Middle School. We also were very, very blessed that the district supported our work starting at the high school, moving to the middle school, and now just beginning at the elementary school in giving the teachers some professional learning experiences on trauma-sensitive practices, which really are related to, to improving student engagement, which is more critical now than ever, and it's going to be another challenge when we shift again, whenever that may be, back in so that they understand that there's techniques that they can use every day that are research-based that are more likely to have most of the kids participate, engage, show up, and and actually have a voice in their learning. So that's then that's something we know we don't want to let go of. The other piece that's come out of it is unfortunate because of the unfortunate um, situations in the in the spring with the racial riots. That our DEI work, our diversity, equity, and inclusion work, has really, really ramped up as it should, and our alumni have been an enormous help in leveraging that work. We have a panel discussion with them coming up about, you know, their impressions of how we could improve our district to be an anti-racist, anti-bias kind of community, and that's exciting to to see their voice in, in our work. There's other things though that we have no control over, and so I think what I've seen from last spring and it's starting to creep away is the trust at the local level on, you know, take care of your kids back, and it's creeping back into that accountability measures of of filling out reports and, you know, measuring, measuring, measuring to an extreme rather than in a balanced fashion, and we won't have control over that. We'll have more control over the instructional things, but... Um... Dr. Cardona is down there in D.C. getting grilled by the Senate, so we're very happy to have one of our local practitioners down there, and maybe, you know, being a practical person, he'll be a great, great help to us.
1: I'm sure. I'm sure. And, you know, it's, this is one of those years where, well, it is an, a unique year and that so much has happened or last year and each one of the incidents on its own would have been something tough to digest as, as a student. And I, I'm thinking of the sort of social upheaval that, that we witnessed based on racial inequality and, and, and other topics. And, and so I, I applaud you for the, the efforts on the diversity, equity, and inclusion. I think that will help students sort of process what, what we've been seeing.
0: Yeah, it's been very well received by our staff too. They are very they're very committed to it being an ongoing professional learning experience for them. And I think they're excited that their their former students are willing to partner in that with them. That's just quite unusual.
1: That is great. So, Marianne, I'll speak from personal experience and say that I have recognized greatness in the efforts of our kids' teachers, the the leaders of the school. We've seen sort of extraordinary creativity, adaptability, patience, compassion. And of course, as you've described, you have uh, an even wider view of this from your seat. So as we're we're running out of time here, I wonder if you can share some more stories that you have witnessed that have touched you as an administrator or or your colleagues as teachers and students. Uh, Any other anecdotes you'd share from this experience?
0: I mean we do have teachers put the instructional materials. Our mental health teams are currently meeting with students. They they even do simple things, sending personal cards home via snail mail just so that their kids know that they're being thought of. We have one student that was having having difficulty getting to school is on a four-day program and uh, she was still having difficulty getting to school. And so the administrators worked with him to get an app on his phone and so he gets a daily message from school that says, you know, it's really important, we need to see you, we we need to have you here today. Mm -hmm. So those are the kinds of of things. We also saw early on when we had to go out last year, the kids were an enormous help to the teachers as, you know, we were leveling the playing field with everybody's expertise in educational technology and these platforms. And, you know, the kids had been living in this environment for so long and they were just an enormous help. You know, being patient with their teachers, and it was great for the teachers to be able to model being lifelong learners. And um, the last story I'll leave you with, I was lucky enough to stand side by side with the Stonington High School teachers last spring when they had their reverse parade when the, the graduates went by in the parking lot, and to see the energy again between the kids laughing at their teachers and the funny exchanges going on and the joy of actually being able to see each other face-to-face face again speaks to why people go into the profession of education.
1: Yes, yes, it does. And, and you know, I will tell a story and hopefully not get anybody in trouble here, but at that same <laughs> <laughs> reverse parade that went on at, at the elementary school, a beloved teacher of Of our daughter, you know, was was standing and waving, and saw her drive by, and came and came running to the car, you know, with her mask on, and said, "I know I'm breaking the rules, but I just need to hug her." And that was a, (laughs) it was a, a touching moment that we will never forget. So, well, listen, as an interviewer, I guess I pretend that I know everything that I should be asking you, but but I, I know that's not the case. So, last question for you, Marianne: Is there anything you would like to share about the work you're doing and the months ahead that I haven't asked?
0: Yeah, I just—I think I would just like to remind everybody that it is our first pandemic, too. <laughs> We're learning as we go, but we, we really, really are keeping the kids' safety and the staff safety at the forefront of all of the decisions that we make. There's tremendous pressure to return to an all-in-person model, and I think there's some misunderstanding of communications that have happened to various sources in the media because so many districts, especially the larger ones, have been remote since last spring, and they're just starting to contemplate coming back to the hybrid model. So when people say come back to school or open the schools, our schools have been open since September, and we've been able to keep the most amount of kids in for the longest period of time because this model is working. And, you know, know, certainly, as we look towards next year, we're going to be examining how we can use facilities, maybe in a different way to get more kids in if we're still looking at the CDC guidelines, not relaxing. But we want people to know that, you know, it is really about safety. We've got a new variant that surfaced in the state that is putting another unknown into the mix. Mm -hmm. Our teachers are not yet vaccinated. Only our nurses are. And so we look forward to the vaccines coming for our staff and for our students. And we, like most parents, can't wait for school to return to an all-in-person model when we can do it safely.
1: We can't either. And so we will look (laughs) forward to that day. So Marianne Butler, on behalf of, of my partners, Tom Lips, Andrew Worthington, Ashley Martella, and Paula Rose, I'd like to thank you for your time today with us and for all of the work you are doing on behalf of our kids and and the teachers and, and the state. So we really appreciate everything that you're doing. Thanks again for being here. Well
0: you're very welcome.